Thank you, Mooney. I was reminded as you were praying and talking about listening to the carols. Um, I don't know if you've ever found it interesting. Uh, I have. Uh, I don't frequent them all or Mayfair often, but uh, occasionally will during the Christmas season. And you'll hear joy to the world being played out over the loudspeakers as you walk up and down into places of shopping. And uh, there is uh, the great truth that is being declared. Um, joy uh, for those who come to him. Uh, he is coming again. And for those who have come to him and trusted in him in this life for their salvation, uh, it will be uh, uh, just a, a wonderful and joyful uh, for those who uh, reject him uh, and do not trust in him for their atonement, uh, for their sin in this life. Uh, it will uh, not be a time of joy. And I was reminded of that. That's the reason for us praying for our community and being faithful in our gospel witness. If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, I, I know it looks pretty broad. Seven, eight, nine, and ten. How will we do it? Well, I want to look at a, a few things from each of the chapters. You will see that they are tied together uh, with a common thread. And I hope that uh, in the course of our time together this morning that that becomes helpful uh, for you. Um, uh, as you're thinking about our Advent season, uh, I'll just mention this to you. If, of course, if you're an OVC member or you've been here and you're in our system, you'll get this information. But our Advent text will be Isaiah chapter 11. We'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 11 for five weeks. So uh, I'll go ahead and give you a heads up for those of you who like to read ahead of time and study and meditate. Uh, uh, that would be helpful to you, but we'll be in Isaiah chapter 11 through our Advent series. We'll conclude Nehemiah next week, and then we'll move into Isaiah chapter 11. Question for you this morning. Uh, how is your heart? How is your heart? Uh, now, before you begin to try to answer that, just know that I'm not speaking mainly, uh, though it, it will have could have some bearing. I'm not speaking mainly about the organ of the human body uh, that, that disseminates by pumping uh, this oxygen-enriched blood uh, throughout our body, which is necessary for life. But I am speaking about the heart as it is described in Scripture. You know, you can actually see a human heart, the anatomical heart. You can Put your hand on it. If you've got your hand in the chest, you can feel it. Um, but the heart that the Scripture speaks of is invisible. It's an invisible heart. You can't see it, but it makes it no less real. It's the invisible part of our being, the central part of our spiritual being. It's kind of an invisible storehouse of where all of our thoughts, all of our emotions, uh, it just all kind of come together. It's the deep place from where our passions gush, the, the place where sorrows set in. It's the place where love is stored and where, from where love flows. The place from where worship pours forth. So as we came in here this morning, if our heart is inclined toward worship, the worship of God. It flows from your heart. Doesn't mean that it's not associated with your thoughts ahead, your mind, your brain, but worship comes from the heart. So, how is your heart? How did you arrive here today? Were you bubbling full, just full and bubbling, or were you boiling over? Were you empty when you came in? Heavy-hearted, maybe? Afraid? Um, maybe some of all the above and maybe some things that I haven't even mentioned. But we arrived here this morning in some condition. Now, the question is, is how will we leave? And, and what will we leave with? 
And I'm hopeful that we will be encouraged today uh, and that we will leave in a better place than how we arrived. Uh, when we pick up in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, you're going to discover that the exiles, the people of Israel, in other words, living in Palestine, are heavy-hearted and grieving. We'll see that in just a moment. Before we read the text, though, just let me remind you, for those of you who are just now joining in with us, give you a little bit of context here. Uh, it's been about 140 years that we've tracked along with uh, when God, according to His promise through the prophets, directed the hearts of several, and we've already read about three, but directed the hearts of several world leaders who, by the way, were not followers of God, okay? But God can do that too. He directed their hearts to decree and support the efforts to send Israelites who were in exile and other nations back to their homeland. At the same time, God was directing the hearts of, of at the same time he was directing the hearts of the pagan world leaders, he was also directing the hearts of certain Jewish leaders uh, to lead the exiles back. And the first group uh, returned under the leadership of Jeshua and Zerubbabel, uh, the second group, 80 years later, uh, were led back by Ezra, the high priest. Um, and then there was a third group that was led back by Nehemiah about 13 years after that. Uh, the first group returned to rebuild the temple, we saw as we studied Ezra. The second, uh, the second group uh, returned under Ezra for the reestablishment of the teaching of the law. They, they were investing in the lives of the people, in their culture, in their society. And he was teaching the law and would hold them accountable to it. And the third group, led by Nehemiah, which we looked at last week, returned uh, to build the walls of Jerusalem. And at the end of our time last week, in chapter 6, we found that it was accomplished. Mission accomplished. It was The walls were completed. And we would think that everything was over. We built our building, uh, we built our temple, and at each juncture along the way, we felt like, okay, it's done, everything is done, all is well. But as we saw last week, and as we've seen each week, there's something more going on here. There are physical needs and physical things that are being built in the same way that if we are trying to build our house or we're trying to build a fence or whatever it is that we feel like that we need. Uh, there are those physical things that are going on, but that is not God's main interest. They're important, but that is not God's main interest. Now, his interest is in the spiritual development of his people. The spiritual development of his covenant people. In fact, that's why we meet here each week, at least in part, we come to worship, but we also come because we are still in this spiritual development season of our lives, and we will be until we die or until the Lord returns. But those are the things that are important, uh, and we'll see this even more today. You say, well, you're not saying anything about, we're starting in chapter 8, and you're not saying anything about chapter 7. The walls were built. I'll tell you chapter 7 if you hadn't read it. This is the short version. The walls were built, but no one was living in the city. So they gathered everybody together and said, listen, the walls are built now. The city needs to be inhabited. Let's decide who's going to come back and live in the city. And so they repopulated the city by those that they had selected and who volunteered to come back and live in the city. They said, was that a big deal? Well, uh, the temple was there. The walls had been built, they were under the protection of God, and they were inviting people to come and to live in the city. People who should want to live in the city, because Jerusalem was that important, and there were those who came back. And then after they come back and begin living in the city, those from outside of the city now come back in, in chapter 8, in verse 1, and we read this when we were studying Ezra but I want us to listen to this today, beginning in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man 
and to the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand uh, what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. And in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood uh, Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, uh, Messiah, on the right hand, Padiah, Mishael, uh, Malachijah, Ashum, uh, Hashbanana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped before the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, uh, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, uh, Messiah, uh, Kelta, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day. It's holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed the people, saying, Be quiet, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. I want us to hear again those words that we find there in verse 10. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And what I want us to do this morning in the few minutes that we have, I want us to give attention to this statement in this context. And the question that I posed at the beginning, how is your heart, is pertinent to the significance of this text. So what we'll do, we'll look at this statement and then we're going to look at the recorded experiences in chapters 8 through 10 to see the pattern of joy and the life of covenant life. The pattern of joy in the life of a covenant member. What does it mean to be a covenant member? If you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have been sealed in His covenant by His blood. We'll look at that as we come to the table here this morning. But you are sealed in that covenant. And that is an everlasting covenant that He has established that by your faith in Him and His atoning work on the cross... Lord Jesus Christ has saved you, and you are now in covenant with Him. You are bound to Him. You are in Him, and there are certain things that come with that joy being one. So we're going to look at that pattern. And what I think you'll discover is that it comes and is maintained in what seems to the world to be very odd ways. And I'm going to share these three things with you, and you can write these three words down, and we're going to track through them through the course of these three chapters. It comes in conviction. Conviction of sin. Conviction of the truth of who God is. 
conviction of what he has said about himself and how that impacts us and how that comes to our hearts and causes us to see how we are and who we are. The second is confession. Once, once convicted comes this confession. Confession of certain truths for sure, but confession of sin. And uh, Booney, uh, just, I think he just stepped out a minute ago, but I appreciated this morning as he prayed for us after our confession because he was specific in addressing those things that we are prone to in our life wasn't a glossing over of how we think and how we feel most of the time, but he was very pointed in that. Confession is that significant. And then the third thing is commitment. So first, let's ask a question and try to answer it. What is joy? What is joy? Well, joy is a hard thing to define. I've been messing with this all week trying to come up with a definition. I, I know I can go somewhere and write down somebody's definition. But, but, but what is joy? And, and, I, and I've landed here, at least, that it is no less, I'm, I'm, I'm not limiting it to this, but it is no less than a great sense of satisfaction in who God is. It stirs the heart at the very depth of our being. And in that, there comes flowing out an abiding trust where we just trust Him in all things. Knowing that as long as we have Him, we don't need anything else. We really don't. When we're talking about resting in God in the midst of hardships and struggles and difficulties and suffering and sicknesses, in broken relationships, and whatever it may be, in the course of all of those things, when we have God, we need no one else. It's that simple. And it is being at a place at the very depths of our heart that that is what overflows within our own lives to the point that it just consumes us and we find even in the midst of those times this overwhelming sense of peace and a kind of a full-orbed glow of the satisfaction that we enjoy in God. And at times that joy does spark smiles, wonders, and even laughter. But at the same time, I found in my own life that it sparks sometimes of tears as well. But tears of joy. And it's all mixed in, and here's the thing that we know about life, it is all mixed in with the hardships, the trials, and the suffering. It's just all mixed in together. John Piper says this about joy. He said, everything we do in the Christian life should flow, and this is because of the joy we have. Everything we do in the Christian life should flow from a heart that has found its ultimate satisfaction in God. I was reminded of that. We're tracking along with, uh, with, with, with some of the brothers here uh, devotionally in 1 Corinthians. And I was reminded as I got to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do for the glory of God. Even the simple things that we do, that sustains life, ultimately for believers who find their satisfaction in God, even the food that they eat and the water that they drink, they do for the glory of God because they are looking to Him for everything because they need no one else but Him. And I want to mention to you today, if you're here and you, and you haven't trusted Christ, I want to tell you, you don't need anyone but Him. You don't need anyone but Him. And here's why. It's because your greatest need is the need of forgiveness and being restored in the presence of God. Your greatest need to be, as we sang earlier, we need to be adopted. We need to be His children. We read that in Ephesians. That is what your need is. You need Christ. And when you have him, you don't need anything in addition to him. You say, what about food and water? Well, if read the Lord's Prayer. 
prayer that we dealt with in our confession, we recognize that we even look to him for our daily bread. We need no one else but him. This is why he commands us in the course of this satisfaction, why he commands us in the course of looking to this joy. Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Then the next thing he says, the Lord is near. He's at hand. The psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Then looks to God and says, satisfy us In the morning with your steadfast love, it brings this spirit of calm that settles the anxieties, that settles all of these issues. And that's ultimately what joy is. It is that peace, that thing that floods our heart, the invisible part of our being, because of our understanding of our satisfaction in God. You say, what does all that have to do with this text? Well, look at what happens. For half a day, they stand from early morning to midday. They stand and they hear the word of God read. Why did they stand? Well, they stood up. They could have sat on the ground. There, There are thousands of people gathered there. They have built a platform, kind of like this, maybe, I don't know. But they built a platform for Ezra to stand on so that his voice would project. And he stood and he read the law. And then they were gathering in groups, explaining it to people and helping them understand what this means and how it was so important for their lives. And you know what happened? Man, the people fell under such deep conviction of their sin and who they were and who God was that they began to weep and they cried and they cried and they cried and it was not a a weeping of joy of having heard the word. It was a weeping of grief for where they were and who they were and what their lives were like. That only comes in one place. It comes from looking at God's Word and seeing His glory. And we're going to know that in just a minute when we get over to chapter 9. But the point is, is that's where they were. And notice what the the Levites did. Notice what these teachers did. They said, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Today is a holy day. 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 Meaning what? reminding them of the holiness of God and they had seen themselves against the holiness of God and they realized just how wretched and messed up their lives were. Just how much they didn't measure up. But they weren't measuring themselves against another man. They were measuring themselves against the wonder and the glory and the beauty of an all-satisfying, loving, caring gracious God, and they fell under this heavy, heavy conviction. And the folks that were teaching them, they were not there to tell them, don't grieve over your sin. They were saying, look at him as your refuge. That word that is translated their strength, most oftentimes in the Hebrew text is translated refuge, fortress, Pointing to salvation. So let's listen to it this way. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord. Look at him for your refuge. You have seen him in his glory. You are broken over your sin. But stop grieving because his grace is sufficient to save you. That's what they were saying. Look to his grace. I don't know where you are here this morning. I don't know where your heart is. But you do. At least in part you do. And wherever you are in the course of this, if you haven't looked to God and trusted Him, hopefully even already in this service, it has caused you to give consideration to your lost state. 
if you haven't trusted him. And, and as heavy as that needs to be, and it should be, there is the grace of God that we sang about a moment ago that will deliver you and will save you and will enable you, will strengthen you. And in him and him alone, you'll find joy. Reminded of the Heidelberg Catechism, very first question. Some of you know it. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That's the very first question. And the answer is, is that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is your only hope in life and death. We sing that song often. You probably didn't know that we were singing the, the Heidelberg Catechism, but we sing it. He has fully paid for all my sins, looking toward the grace of God with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. I love that part in there. Don't you, Booney, about uh, all the hair of our head. It was, it was all will by God. His will over and over again. Justin, will over and over again. Was willed by him. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing from now on to live for him. Our only comfort in life and death. But you know what the second question is? What must you know to live and die in the joy of a comfort? That's what we're talking about, this peace, this comfort this joy that we have? Well, the answer is, is three things. First, how great my sin and misery are, which is exactly what we see happening here in the lives of these people as they sat under the teaching of God's Word. They were broken and they were miserable. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. And that was exactly what the teachers were encouraging them to do and what I am encouraging you to do today. Look to him for strength and refuge and salvation. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. We'll see that today in the commitment. That's the point. That's the point for us to hear and to see. One is the deep conviction of sin. Now look over in chapter 9. It's a long text, but I want you to let's follow along because this is their prayer of confession. Two or three things I want us to look at. I want you to look at the various ways that God is described in this text. Okay? Look at all the ways that he is mentioned. The second thing, I want you to hear the comparison between how God has manifest his grace and shown himself and how the people have responded to God. Not so good. I, I think about me, and I think about all of us. Listen to those things as we listen to this prayer, beginning in verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heavens and the heavens and the heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made with him a covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. 
And you saw the affliction of your fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, all of his servants, and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night and to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke with them from heaven and you gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water from them out of the rock for their thirst and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and you did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as stars of the heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess, so that the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance, so that they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies, and you made them suffer and in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and a stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them to, or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all of our people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. 
Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law and paid attention to your commandments. And your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the, in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and good gifts. Behold, we're slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom they have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies, over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Cheer it over and over again that God was merciful and gracious, true to his covenant, keeping his promises. And in all of that, they were praying, confessing how those before them had turned from God and how they even at that time themselves had turned from God and they were slaves in the land that God had given them. How is that joyful? How does that solidify peace and joy in the hearts of God's people? There is something tremendously rich about confessing and getting before God and acknowledging who we are. And when we sin, we get before Him and we cry out to Him and we are always reminded that He is merciful and good. That's where our satisfaction comes from. That's where that joy builds. That's how we stay there. It is when we turn away from that practice that the joy and the peace slip away. I may mention this to you, and I do it pretty often, but I want you to know we do what we do for a reason. Do you know why we have the confession and assurance of pardon? We mention this pretty often, but you know why we do that? It keeps us at a place where we can experience the fullness of the joy of God, even in the heaviness of confessing and dealing with our sin because we are always at the very beginning of our services, we are looking to the holiness and the goodness of God. And then the very next thing that we do is when we are before Him, even when we are praising Him, as we did this morning, we are reminded that even in the course of that, we are not God. He is. And He is wonderful. And then we begin see not just our smallness in relation to a great God but we see our sin and it becomes heavy on us in our time of confession but what always follows that the assurance of pardon why? Because we, just as these worshipers were doing here, they were continually reminded of the mercy and the grace of God. As we are again today. Look into Him. Our satisfaction is in Him and it will not come apart from being in the presence of His Word. Having it, having it covered over our hearts, pressed into our very being and our minds. Causing us to deal rightly with Him because we have seen ourselves rightly and we have looked at Him rightly. But there is a third thing, and that is commitment. I want you to look at verse 38. After they have been under conviction, after they have confessed the things and looked at God and responded to Him in the way that they have, verse 38, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes. And then those next verses there, 
are all of those who signed this document on behalf of the people saying, we are making a commitment to you. I want you to look at verse 30. For the sake of time, I would encourage you, just read all of this together because all of this is happening one day after the next. I mean, all of this is just coming in sequence. They, they, they meet. They hear God's Word read. They understand it. They come under conviction. The very next thing they do is they begin to confess their sin. And then after that, coming right out of that confession, but we have to make a commitment to God. We want to commit our lives to Him. We want to look like what He wants us to look like. We want to be like what He intends us to be. Again, make that connection even this morning as we were praying for our community. We were praying for us as well to be His people. To proclaim the fact that He is our Redeemer. And in proclaiming that He is our Redeemer... People can look at our lives and know that we have been redeemed and when we are different. In preparation for this week, I came across this thing that said that, um, that in the first 400 years of Christianity, they went from 12 followers, and, and it was the, 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 the disciples, went, went from the 12 apostles to about 30 million people by about the 4th century. And the question was asked, how in the world could something, a movement like Christianity, move in 400 years from 12 people to somewhere estimated about 30 million people? And, and, the, and, and everybody has looked at this historically, and they've all come up, even, even those who are not believers, they all can't have come up, have, they came up with the same solution. It's because they just lived differently than the people in the Greco-Roman world. Their worldview was different, the way they lived, the way they carried themselves, the things that they did, the things that they didn't do. Well, that's what's happening here. Look in verse 30. Well, back up. I'll tell you what. Back up in verse 28. And the rest of the peace, the rest of the people, the priest, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. In other words, all of those who had placed themselves under the authority of God's word. Okay? Their wives their sons, their daughters, all who have acknowledged and understand, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into uh, a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. And here are the three things that they said we are going to do. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for their sons. We looked at that in Ezra. We're not going to come back and revisit that, but just to be reminded that they understood their need to separate themselves even at the point of their marriages. They were going to marry believers. They were going to marry covenant people. They were going to marry like-minded people. And I want to insert this again today. For those of you who maybe are now looking or who will, our, our young men and women who will be looking, uh, let me go ahead and encourage you. Don't look down the path of an unbeliever and don't try to make them into a believer because you love them or somehow think the best of them that they can become a believer if they are not already demonstrating their faithfulness. And young ladies, if they are not already leading you go in the opposite direction. And, and young men, if they are not already loving God and His Word, go in the opposite direction. Don't even head down that path. Don't head down that path. And that was the point here. But look what else they said. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or grain on the Sabbath day to sell, will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. So not only are we are going to protect our relationships 
we are also going to observe the Sabbath. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of their death. And then in verse 32, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the God of the house of our God. And they go on for the showbread and the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering and the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring to it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it's written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord and also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions and the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground for it is the Levites who collect the tithes and all of our towns where we labor and the priest and the son and Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God in the chambers of the storehouse for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain and the wine and the oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are as well as the priest who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers and listen to the last phrase this is their commitment. We will not neglect the house of our God. Hear that. We will not neglect the house of our God. What was their commitment? What was their commitment? They were going to go back to the very beginning and do what God intended man to do, and that is, is they were going to, they were going to be at union with each other and they were going to lift up, seek out, support, and hold on to relationships that were grounded with people who were like-minded, who follow God. They were going to observe the Sabbath. You say, how big of a deal is that? Uh, I was reading this week that about 40% of the Americans, and I fall in this category, okay? So I, I'm, this, this is, I'm 40% of Americans sleep six hours or less a day. They are tired. They are worn down. They are sick. They are frustrated. All of those things come in the midst of that. It is chronic fatigue, and it's not a syndrome in this case. It is that people neglect to rest because we always feel like that we have to do rather than rest in the Lord. Did you know a hundred years ago, you know how that same percentage of Americans, you know, you know about how much sleep that they got? They averaged about nine hours a day. You say, well, that's, that's, that's lazy. I say that, I'm on that end, on the other end of things. No, it's not lazy. It's that they didn't feel like they had to do everything. They didn't feel like they had to pack their life full of activities and things to go and to go and to go and to not rest and their minds are all scrambled up and their thinking is wrong and they struggle physically. Ultimately, what the Levites, what, what the people were committing to do is that we are going to rest in God and we're going to observe His day for what? So that we can worship and we can rest and we can give our attention to the things of God. Not just that day, but on that day, we're going to spend our lives and our time acknowledging Him. And then it's interesting, these are the things that they're committing, and we are not going to neglect the house of God. 
think about how radical this is. And this isn't a, this isn't a, yeah, this isn't a lesson on tithing and on giving. I, but I do, but I do think this is a radical thing. With things being the way they are in our culture, in our economy, it is a radical thing for an unbeliever to think that someone would, at the very outset, take 10%, at least 10% of their income, right off of the top, and take it and give it away. Kind of radical, isn't it? When you think about it in terms of the pursuit for the dollar and the pursuit for things, don't you find that kind of a radical thing to think that someone would work all week long and at the very outset, not what was left, not after I got this done, but the very first fruits to take 10% of it, a tithe, 10% of it, and take it and give it away. What does it say about them? It says about them what is at the very heart of joy and peace is that we need nothing but the Lord Jesus. So I can give it away knowing that I rest in Him and He will take care of all the things that need to be cared for. We're going to conclude there. Or not quite. But just to say this. I want that kind of joy and peace in my life. And the pattern seems clear. Have God's word poured over me. Look at him and his holiness and his greatness. See me for who I am. See him for who he is. Confess those things. Grieve, but then stop grieving in the course of that and rest in his grace. Commit my life to him. You commit your life to him and then live. Now, let me ask this question. Where is your heart? How is it? I'm not going to try to tell you where it is. I don't know your heart. But know that there is one who does. the one who knows all. Will you pray with me? Father, do your work in our hearts, a work that only you can do through your word and by your spirit in Christ's name. Amen.